This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Welcome to this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Jeff Spees. He's the author of the new book, Dying with Ease, a compassionate guide for making wiser end-of-life decisions. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. It's great to be here, Saul. Yeah, you and Joe are doing a great thing there, so I'm happy to be part of it. Thank you. Could you uh, properly introduce yourself to our listeners? <laughs> Uh, probably not because I'm generally an improper kind of person. But okay. that's, oh, well, then do I'll what you it, do. I'll, I'll do, <laughs> do what I do. So I've recently retired after a career uh, in medicine, medical practice. I started in um, uh, oncology in uh, a multi-specialty uh, clinic, quickly uh, found an interest in end-of-life care that really came because I just thought that was part of the job. You know, the that I being an oncologist in the 80s meant that a lot of your patients, most of your patients died. And I thought taking care of them to the end was just part of the job. And I fell in love with it Uh, and then, you know, volunteered as a you know part time medical director for a local hospice agency. I was looking to transition my career and had an opportunity um, in 2001 and left uh, uh, practice to go into back into ac- the academic world. And I was uh, at the uh, University of Iowa uh, where I saw cancer patients to make my salary and uh, headed up the palliative care program because that's what I wanted to do. Um, I learned a tremendous amount there, but I, one thing I learned was that academics and I didn't necessarily get along well. Um, so then for uh, 15 years before I retired, I was uh, a full-time hospice medical director uh, here in the Cleveland area. And um, that's kind of the, the uh, professional introduction, as it were. So that's, that's me. Okay. <laughs> you, uh, you wrote this book, and I, uh, hearing you just talk about this, what was it that uh, more or less tripped your trigger to make you want to write this book? You know, that's interesting. I knew I wanted to write something for the last 10 or so, 10, 15 years or so. And I had stops and started. And I knew it was going, it had to have a spiritual bent. Um, you know, I I um, started off with, with a lot of questions that I had uh, that came out of my spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but eventually, it it coalesced into realizing what where really the focus was, where really the passion was, and that was that in years of working, really my whole career with people with serious illness and terminal illness, especially those at the very end of life, I what distressed me was the amount of suffering that I was seeing that didn't need to be, and that really was the the 
the impetus to try and dig into into that a little bit. A lot of the suffering that you know clicked my trigger was physical stuff because I'm a doc. That's what I do. Hmm. But I quickly realized that that's really not the point. That the point of relieving physical uh, symptoms is to allow the healing to happen, to give space for that, because you can't do the end-of-life work you need to if you're writhing in pain or retching into the wastebasket all the time. So yes, physical symptoms are critical, but that uh, relieving physical symptoms let the healing happen mm-hmm. and let the, uh, uh, the, um, the team do their work. The point of unnecessary suffering, I mean, there's lots of reasons for that, but I think one of the key points is that we, and by we, I mean all of us, but Americans in particular, do this very badly because none of us believe we are mortal. None of us believe it's going to ever apply to us. Mm-hmm. And and um, uh, the and I think that if we faced our own mortality more honestly, um, uh, and I don't mean that in a down and 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 uh, drudgery kind of way, but if we just recognized that we were mortal, we would make different choices. That we might make different choices, and if we became comfortable with our own dying, we certainly would make better plans for it, and uh, and that there would be, I believe, much less uh, distress at the end of life for a lot of people, anyway. So, what can be done to educate the public about that? Yeah. Um, have them all buy my book. That would be a good thing. <laughs> One way to awaken awareness is for people to become aware that they are at risk for dying. And I think having a pandemic is doing that for a lot of us. Uh, I know that this is getting, it's old news now. Uh, but if I think back to the what was happening back in March and April, uh, at, at least as as I saw it, of people hunkering down and 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 um, hoarding toilet paper and doing crazy things. I mean, this was a great deal of fear. I I get that, but it also made people aware. You know, I am vulnerable, and I need to do something about that. Um, unfortunately, most of what we do is is to like try and additionally protect ourselves, but. I, I think that if you can go beyond that to the point of, well, if I got get really sick with COVID such that I might die from it, what would I want that to look like? Do I want to go in and into the hospital in an intensive care unit where my family can't come and visit me, where I have to be alone? Um, and or is there another option that I should think about? What? Because one thing that that is important is thinking about dying. It's not the death thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the death thing you may not be able to do anything about, but what you can do something about is um, what happens up to that point. Is how you live the last part of your life. Now, sometimes those those choices are taken away. You know, a drive-by shooting. Uh, massive heart attack, mm. um, terrorist attack, things like that. You don't get a choice in them. But for most of us, most of us in America will die after a period of declining health, worsening disease, and increasing frailty. And 
So what do you want that part of your life to look like? Jeff, you, you talked about, I mean, your, your book, of course, the title of it is Dying with Ease. What does that mean to, if you were to, if, if a patient came to you and says, you know, I understand I'm dying, how do I prepare? How do you tell someone to die with ease? I, I think that the key is to get some of the suffering out of the way mm. before it happens. Um, and because so much of the suffering that we encounter is emotional and is spiritual, one of the things that taught me was an exercise that I went through as a participant. Maybe you've used it. I mean, hospice folks do things of all this, of this stripe all the time where you guide people in an exercise through what it might be like to be that person who progressively loses everything, because that is something that all of us have in common with the dying, is that we know what it's like to lose. We know what it's like to have loss. And some people talk about those losses as um, little deaths. Mm -hmm. Right, so, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that thinking that way, thinking through that, I, I'm convinced that if, you know, we've only got so much anger even though it seems like if you look around in the world, there's a lot of it out there. But I think um, I would hope that it's it's limited. And, and and can I get over some of the anger about the fact that I'm going to die or the shock or that uh, and the emotional distress that happens? If you encounter some of those emotions earlier, um maybe in little bits and manageable pieces, they become less distressing when they're all piled on you because there's enough distress at the end of life if you do it perfectly. It's, it, it's, it, it's not fun. I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything. Dying, mm. dying sucks. I, dying, I get is yes. dying is hard. Dying is hard. It is a big job. Mm -hmm. And the easier you can make it ahead of time is, 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 uh, is the key. So, there was a, a study done. This was actually in cancer patients and, and making choices, but I think it's informative. And it looked that, that it had to do with people with advanced lung cancer whose primary treatment had failed. And they were considering whether to try a second line therapy or not. And the study looked at the way the information about the new, the second treatment was presented. And it was shown that if at least one little bit of negative information was shared, that it affected outcomes. You know, I'm always intrigued by the background of um, experts like yourself. Uh, did you always know from a young age that you'll be working in this field? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I knew that I wanted to be a doctor from early on. Mm. Um, and there, it, medicine was kind of a role model for me. My wife was a nurse. I had an uncle. One of my favorite uncles is a doc. And um, it, it just was fascinating to me, you know. So, so I always knew that was going to be the case. But what I would do with that um, didn't fit. I, I read here on your website, uh, you say one of the reasons you wrote this book was to address questions like, what do religion and spiritual philosophy have to say about dying? 
Are you able to to bring that out for our listeners? Yeah, um, I, I I think that the the main thing that I have found as I've delved more and more into issues of of religion, spirituality, theology, and the intersection with with the the dying process is the mystery. Mm. Is that the more and more that I just don't know. And I think that makes it even more wonderful. Now, mm. that probably doesn't help some of your listeners here. <laughs> but I do think that one thing that has shown is that openness is really good. Um, that this, the, this, the, I found that the religious tradition that I was raised in didn't work for me mm. because the, it provided a whole bunch of answers but they weren't answers to the questions I was asking. Mm. And, and um, I think that's a, a big issue with um, uh, the issues that of a lot of spiritual pain that people go through at, at the end, especially, um, you know, this is going to be my plug for you guys, is that as a hospice doc, one of my biggest distresses was when I, well, maybe not biggest, but one of my distresses was, when patients would say they didn't want to see the hospice hospice chaplain because they had their own minister coming. Well, that's fine. Your own minister is fine. And I'm not dissing that guy, that man or woman. They may be the most wonderful person in the world and it may be exactly right, Mm. but there's a specialty here. And there's there's the lack of an agenda. It's tough because if if, uh, I'm close to dying and I'm afraid to ask the questions because I'm afraid that I might be wrong or maybe even worse, I'm afraid I might be right. But the person who has taught me all these things is the one that's counseling me. How can I ask those questions? That's why, that's why I love the uh, really encouraged, um, encourage patients to at least talk to them. You know, if you don't like them, you don't like them. That's fine. <laughs> My dad didn't see the hospice chaplain when he was in hospice. Yeah, that distressed me, but he, boy, I'm going down a way different line, but he had had his healing eight <laughs> years before he died. When he died, he suffered a cardiac arrest while at a stop sign and was resuscitated in the field. Um, and, you know, he was unconscious for, for days, and but, but, but recovered. And he never remembered anything. My sister really was saying when dad was unconscious, I can't wait till he wakes up and can tell us what he saw, you know, hoping for a, a, a meaningful near-death experience. Dad didn't remember anything. Mm. But dad was different. Mm-hmm. Um, he figured out what, now I don't know, it was at the moment of the death, I don't think so, but I think that informed him that that living was, that there were important things that needed to be different. And he did his, his end of life work mm-hmm. after he had died. Uh, and he was, he was ready uh, uh, when he finally came, came to it. So that was, that was good. Anyway, so what religion and spirituality have to teach us is that there is there is a depth that where there can be so much healing uh, that can happen um, and that hope and love can overcome fear. And I know 
people that are dying are often scared to death, but there are, there is, what can I say? There is a balm in Gilead. It, yep. it is yep. possible. Exactly. Exactly. I know the language. There you go. <laughs> okay. Just, just do me a favor. Just don't start singing, okay? I know that is not going to happen. <laughs> Jeff, uh, you, you've spoken a lot from, we, from right at the beginning of our conversation about suffering. Now, how do you describe, define uh, suffering? Because you, you started talking initially about the physical suffering. And now, just recently, you were just talking about spiritual suffering. Right. Uh, we're, you know, I know that, you know, I've seen it. I definitely, both Saul and I have seen it out in the field, as you say, uh, of, that, of that spiritual suffering that people don't want to acknowledge. Right. And how do you, how do you, how do you teach that? Or how do you let people know that that's really real? Yeah. Um, so... My idea of suffering um, really was informed from Eric Cassell's work from back in the 90s, his book, uh, The Nature of Suffering, suffering and the Goals of Medicine. Um, and he made the distinct distinction between pain and suffering, saying that a bone can hurt, a liver can hurt, um, uh, a lung can feel short of breath, but a bone and a liver and a lung cannot suffer, only a person can suffer. Oh, uh, and that suffering has to do with the meaning of what is happening. The example I use, and I've, I've used it in my book, and it's it's a little cliche and it's a little trite, but I think it, it, it makes the point, is to imagine two women in hospital beds, uh, both with tensely distended abdomens, both having intermittent episodes of pain that causes them to scream out, dear God, make it stop. One of these women has ovarian cancer that is spread throughout her abdomen, and she has a high-grade partial bowel obstruction. And with every little gas bubble that goes through, she in experiences intense 10 out of 10 pain. You know what cramping abdominal pain feels like. And each one of those pains says, tells her, reminds her that she has cancer and that she is dying. Mm. The other woman is giving birth to her first child. She's having intense 10 out of 10 cramping abdominal pain, but each pain that she experiences tells her that she is just that much closer to holding her infant. Now the pain is the same, but the meaning is profoundly different. One and the suffering is profoundly different. So that little little too simple example is is what it means to. So I I'm um, I I'm I do know some people suffer terribly related to pain and, or related to their symptoms. Um, one of the patients, and I think I use his story in the book, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, that I remember most was a man who had um, uh, cancer of his upper stomach and just had horrible vomiting. And he was on home hospice and I, and I saw him uh, several times and he did, he hated the, the vomiting. Um, and we talked about palliative sedation with the idea of that when it was, important for him that, you know, he wanted to know if I would put him to sleep 
um, um, when he said it, he was done mm. and put him to sleep. I, I shouldn't use that word because that implies the, a euthanasia thing. But when he was dying, uh, that that I would do everything I could to relieve that that his distress of that vomiting. Mm. And he lived for a while. Um, he was doing his work. He he was he um, didn't have much of a faith tradition, but he had hired a um, a Buddhist um, uh, uh, coach, a Buddhist death coach, uh, to help help him work through um, his dying process and what what would happen and finding the meaning. And he knew that when the meaning was gone. When all he, or when the meaning, the meaning of living Mm. no longer held anything for him, when there was only the physical, physical symptoms, that that's when it became suffering that was unbearable. And that's when he could live with the vomiting as long as he had other things um, uh, that, that made his life meaningful. It was only when it was the vomiting, Uh, what Sigmund Freud described as um islands of pain in the midst of dying uh mm. that that's or something like that 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 was was suffering so that's how i look at the two so i i really think that most i won't say all because there's no alls never say never or always but that that most of the suffering that people go through is emotional psychological spiritual relational um, and that the physical stuff is informs that and and makes it harder. Uh, but I think that's where the where the uh, that's how I come down on the diff on really the difference between pain and serious symptoms and suffering. Yeah. Yeah. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and can use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. I'm Sole Berman. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Before the break, we're talking to Dr. Jeff Spears. Uh, doctor, why is it that um, many patients don't want to hear the word hospice? Because I guess hospice means dying. I think that's just yet another remove from the fact that we don't want to face face dying. Um, and that, that we're, I, I don't know what we're afraid of. Well, I guess I do. But, 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 um, the um it's it's a mindset i it's interesting the idea i think there's a bit of it that goes back to when we were kids and it's in children that are of kind of elementary school age f- 5 to 10 age there's a mindset that if you think about or talk about something bad then that's like causing it you can uh-huh. make it happen uh-huh. and 
I think that people still have that feeling mm-hmm. like I can't talk about this because it, it's it's scary and it might and it might happen. happen. Um, we use all the euphemisms, you know, to talk about it. I have a, a friend who's a um, director of uh, chaplaincy services at a large uh, uh, urban referral center, and she she says no. Um, expiring is for magazines and milks and milk <laughs> passing is for exams and kidney stones, um, that people die. Um, I, I, True. I, yeah, the, the, um, and, but she says that to, to medical students, not to, not necessarily to patients, but, but I do think that the jargon and the euphemisms get in the way. Um, w- the number of people that were referred to my oncology practice who had never heard the word cancer applied to them. They'd heard words like tumor and growth and malignancy and lumps and spread and even metastasis, but hadn't heard the cancer word. Or the people that come into hospice and haven't heard the word die uh, to know that that's what it's about. Um, The... Those are charged words. I get that, um, but but I think honesty really really helps. It's it's um, if you know your enemy, if you want to see death as your enemy, if you know your enemy and know who it is, you can act. You can create a game plan or a battle plan better as long as you know what you're fighting for and come up with with the goals. I I. I, I wish that it were not so. I um I do think Americans are worse because of of, of uh, worse. Here we go with 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 value judgments. Um, uh, Americans are have more problems with being honest about their mortality because it's uncontrollable. I mean, Americans are the we have the pioneer spirit, the can-do, self-made person. Uh, we conquer the world. That that exceptionalism word that I don't even want to go go down that road, but that we can control and do anything. Well, you can't fix this. You're going to die. You, right. It doesn't matter who you are. You don't get out of this. No. Um, uh, and it's foreign and it's unfamiliar and it's scary. Uh, you know, the way, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Jeff. Uh, you talked about, you're talking here about how people see things when you are addressing the issue of of death. And one of the things that we find, of course, in the chaplain business is that uh, they sometimes refuse us until the end. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's like the Catholic priest being told, well, you can only come in and, and you know, do last do rites. Right. Right. Uh, happens all the time. Uh, but that's not what we're there. I mean, we're not there to do the, 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 the dogma stuff and everything. We're there to walk and accompany them on their journey. But then you have to overcome the idea that chaplain also means, oh, if the chaplain comes in, that means I'm going to die tomorrow. Yeah. And I find that uh, distressing because after it's all done and over with and you come by and you come back and you talk to the family, oh, we should have had you sooner. Oh, you did a great job. Thank you for being there for my, pa- yeah. my loved one. And it's, it's, a, it's an uphill battle. But I think uh, if we continue to have docs like you that's out there trying to inform people, that might be helpful. But also, like Joe, <laughs> Joe you had said earlier, some physicians also uh, take a long time to refer the patients to hospitals. That's right. 
Right. So I, I think there's a couple pieces to that. And I, I'm going to go two ways down this road. One is that the um, there's a lot of reasons that uh, that docs don't refer as often as those of us in hospice or as early as those of us in hospice think they should. Um, but I, I'll, I'll do my little my little defense in that I'm not in that room. I don't know the way that conversation went. And I can tell you by being a cancer doc, you don't know if you've not done it, you don't know how hard it is to sit mm-hmm. across from that yeah. young mother and and talk about the fact that she is dying. Uh, that is a hard job. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's a, a little bit of defense. But one thing I think that is true about why docs don't do this well is because docs have the same problem that all of us have. And that they don't want to talk about it because they're afraid of it. I mm-hmm. so so one of the most brilliant end of life books I uh, from the last decade was Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, um, and he he describes an episode of of epi- an epiphany for him, a revelation for him, where he's sitting with a patient and their family, and it, he finally realizes this person's going to die. I can't prevent it, and it's got to somehow be okay uh, for me. But I think there's one more step, and to realize that it's the person in the white coat also that's going to die, and I can't do anything to change that, and somehow it's got to be okay. And then to do your own death work. Um, I I was talking to um, a priest yesterday who t- talked about that in, in training for the priesthood, one thing that he was uh, taught was that you needed to do your own work in order to be able to help somebody somebody else. Right. And I, I right. wish docs would do their own uh, death work um, a little a little bit better. And I think that that would change that would change the, the dynamic a bit. I had um, a, I had the occasion when I was in my CE, CPE program to be walking down a hallway. And in the, the nurse's station, there was this doc, and he was rather uh, vigorous and pontificating, I guess I'll put it. And he was talking about how he, with his hands, and he had his hands out like, out like you're supposed to, and say, these hands control life and death. And I thought, boy, that's pretty arrogant. <laughs> and then he goes, and I, it is such a heavy burden. Ah. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, there's the humanity. There, it is there. <laughs> it is there, it and is I there. thought that is wonderful. Thank you for you know sharing that. But yet, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are docs out there who think, you know, I've got the, you know, I've got the control of it all, and then they find, you know, and that's a heavy, heavy burden. It, it is. It, it is the uh, uh, when I um, the when I went to the University of Iowa, I was there was the wonderful palliative care nurse that that I worked with then uh, said that a person who had the the doctor who had just finished his term as chief of staff for the university hospital uh, had was was known to have made the comment when talking about palliative care people don't die here patients don't die here well I'm not quite sure why the funeral director showed up 800 <laughs> times the year before um, maybe the coffee is good I don't know uh, <laughs> But there is that, and uh, uh, any, anyway, let let me do one more piece for that for that uh, for the, your your comment about the um, 
the uh, only allowing the chaplain at the at the last minute. And that's a I think in hospice, part of it's an understanding of what it's about um, uh, and the whole point of of the team. Uh, I, I know it's fine to say, well, they're all part of the team, and 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 then even a probably a less helpful word. And Medicare says that the spiritual care coordinator has to contact you. Uh, that's yeah, that's 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 great. Yeah, here's another here's another regulation. I got a hoop. I got to jump through. I found one thing that was very helpful for me, and I think helpful in the team. And this was admittedly in a select population. It was mainly when I was working as a director of a hospice inpatient unit, um, was to make sure that my conversation was about stuff besides just the medical stuff. And one of my, one of my favorite questions, and it was favorite for two reasons. One is because it was effective. And secondly is because I think it, it helped the conversation especially if the patient is not terribly responsive and you're talking with the family is to just do the, so tell me about mom. Mm-hmm. And when the doctor asks that question, the first thing is, well, what do you mean? What do you, what about mom? Didn't you read her records? Did you know, <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff. So I mean, no, no, tell me about your mother. Mm, right. And then that starts the, that starts the conversation that number one is helpful because I want to know about who this person is and their goals and their, and, and how I should, should interact with, with them. But it also then, I think does two things for the family. One is that it informs them that this is different. This is not about the disease anymore. This is about mom. And mm-hmm. the second mm-hmm. is to 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 then allow that 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 as they think about that that maybe that other members of the team are perhaps a little more welcomed uh, that when they realize oh this is a different world this isn't medi- this isn't just medicine anymore this isn't the hospital and whether where they're you know trying to get this done so they can check it off and get me discharged. Um, uh, this is this is uh, a different way of thinking, and yes, it's the magic. And even if you only get an hour at the end of their life, some ma- something happens because yes. uh, it happens. But the number of patients who said, "Why didn't anybody ever ask us these questions before?" Well, it's not the way we do things in this country. Um, and um, so, yes, I know that an hour of hospice is better than none than none at all. Mm. Uh, an, a chaplain visit, you know, during the last ten minutes of life is better than no chaplain visit at all. Mm. But there's people don't know what they're missing. Don't know what they're missing. I I I've, I've wrote down one of your uh, just little statements here. You said a different way of thinking. You just said, and how do we? break this uh, or bring this new way of thought to uh, the communities of which we serve. Um, you know, people, you know, I talk to people all the time, as you do, and, you know, then they hear about I work for hospice, and then all of a sudden I hear automatically always the hospice stories that are exceedingly positive and wonderful. Yes, yes. I'm not sure that's being spoken of, you know, at Dinner parties. <laughs> I'll put it, put it that way. I, I, you know, I just think that it's, uh, you know, you know, my my uh, 
you know, my parent died and, and uh, we had hospice and it really was a good death. And I mean, how many people have that conversation? Yeah. So if I knew the answer, you that's a brilliant question. That's a brilliant question. <laughs> come on, come on and, you're, and the, think, you're the doctor. It, you know everything. Ah, uh, these hands. Uh, they, <laughs> they, they, um, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be getting a prize in Oslo next year. But oh, there I, you don't, go. <laughs> I don't know this answer. I w- it's a cultural thing. It's a societal thing. And and this is I I I don't know. There are cultures that do this very well. Yeah. There. Um, uh, or at least do it differently, and it seems to be more effective. Um, the There was an article in the New York Times. What day was it? I posted it. Um, must have been Monday. Um, about, um, I guess they needed something besides pre-election coverage. And it was... It was uh, uh, it, it was a story about a, a town in Mexico where there's a, a museum of of death, and um, as it came to um, uh, the the day of the dead, there was a contest being held for who was the best mourner, who could cry the best, and you could hire them out. Um, <laughs> and it's it's now I'm not sure. I guess there are lots of people that have that have hired hired mourners, um, uh, and uh, but. That doesn't explain it, but there are. But I, I think that we we separated ourselves because it didn't used to be this way in this country. Um, the in the the 19th century, when people died at home and think people talked about dying, uh, they had to because they, it it was part of the it was part of the fabric. You might die if you were 12 when you got pneumonia. Um, because there wasn't anything you could do about it. Um, the, the, and medicine talked about dying because it was, it was part of it. You did the best you could, but you knew Hmm. that was going to happen. It was the miracles that changed things. Not the, not the miracles in the divine sense, but, you know, I, I date it from 1929, which is when Alexander Fleming's mold uh, showed the penicillin Mm -hmm. and that all of a sudden medicine could cure, not just alleviate and help and relieve, but cure. And that is a different paradigm. And, uh, and I, I think we just lost something in that, in that conversation as, as a culture. I mean, we, we know how bad it got so that back in the 90s, uh, when there was consideration of, of adding a benefit to health care coverage for having end-of-life advanced care planning discussions, uh, that that uh, uh, it got labeled as death panels that somehow somebody was going to decide that grandma was done and needed to needed to get out of the way. Well, that's a. I mean, you if 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 we start using words like that, that's just poison. Mm. Um, uh, so I don't know the answer, Joe. I wish it were different. Um, mm-hmm. I think life would be better. I think. Medical costs would go down. I think suffering would be less. Yeah. I think you'd be busy, um, and I think the world would be a better place. Um, if I know that I am mortal, and if I know that the person across from me with whom I'm having a disagreement is mortal, 
somehow we're in this boat together and we've got to solve something as opposed to I'm Superman, that person is Lex Luthor, and I have to conquer them. Mm -hmm. I think recognition of our own mortality might make us a little kinder uh, nation as well. Yeah, it's all just a second. So, I mean, it's obvious that we we had a a person that we've interviewed who wanted to educate people on how to use, uh, not to be afraid to use words such as death and dying, that type of thing, more or less along what you're saying as well. We have to learn how to be able to communicate and uh, be willing to share those. So before we go, the time has just gone by so quick. Uh, Jeff, you're one of the leading thinkers in this field of death and dying. And I want you I want you to talk to our listeners about the quality of your book, of your work, um, and what contribution this book brings to the discussion. Yes, and, and like I, we mentioned before, there are other books out there, and, and some of them will resonate with some people more than others. That's, that's fine. Um, my, my thinking is more of an inner preparation for, for dying, uh, because as I said, I think that's where the real work is. Yes, advanced, you know, getting your advanced directives done and, and making sure you have a will, those are, those are necessary, but not sufficient. So I, I, my, my work is informed by the processes that are going on in my brain and in my spirit, and I just offer them for what they are. And I, and I, I think that um, they do seem to be resonating with, with some people. I like that I have the, the expertise to talk about that, and maybe that makes it a little safer that this is a doctor writing about it and it, it's medical. So maybe that makes it a little safer for people. I hope people will find, find meaning from it and find it helpful. Yeah. It's a great book. Personal. I like it. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. I uh, will also have a link from the hospicechaplaincy.com website. Uh, any final thoughts? I, I'm, I'm so grateful to hear from the uh, medical community because we've not this you are the first one that we've had from the from uh, who has been a doctor of the oh my and we've interviewed and i i it's refreshing it's uh, invigorating and it's uh, reassuring that there's people out there who are thinking about this and especially uh, i'll be honest with you i was very very uh, impressed and pleased about your your faith background and your journey which we did not cover much but thank you so much thank you Thank you. That was Dr. Jeff Spees, and thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.